0: On the White House lawn, September 15, 2020, the peace agreements brokered by the United States of America between Israel, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain were signed. The peace agreements between the nations would be known as the Abraham Accords, in homage to the Biblical patriarch of both Jews and Muslims. The Accords have ushered in a new era for Israel and the Gulf region, enabling diplomatic relations, trade, commerce, tourism and cultural exchange the Accords of the Potential to Impact the Trajectory of the Middle East. The Abraham Accords podcast will be your source of quality conversation for anyone interested in the region with weekly guests on a range of topics from all signatory nations. My name is Robert Curtis and I will be co-hosting this podcast with Fleur Hassan Nahum, Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem and my co-founder of the UAE Israel Business Council. Thank you for joining us. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Abraham Accords podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Fleur. Fleur, how's the week been?
1: It's been long and tiring, but always fun in this country. Never a dull moment. How's yours,
0: Rob? It's been absolutely great, actually. And I'm actually really excited for today because we have a very special guest. Me too. So joining us today is Ambassador Michael Oren. Ambassador Michael Oren is a statesman, scholar, and author. He has devoted much of his life to Israel, from making aliyah in the 1970s to serving in the IDF and becoming a member of the Knesset and deputy minister in the prime minister's office. Prior to this, Ambassador Oren served for nearly five years between 2009 and 2013 as Israel's ambassador to the United States of America, one of the most important roles within the diplomatic landscape. He was instrumental in obtaining increased US defense aid, especially for the Iron Dome, as well as other key roles as Israel's top diplomat during the Obama presidency. A New York best-selling author, Ambassador Oren is a regular contributor to global TV news channels and writes op-eds on the region, so it is an honor to welcome him to the Abraham Accords podcast. Welcome Ambassador Oren, and if I may say, and something we don't say often enough here, Thank you for your service to our country.
2: <laughs> thank you. They do not. It's uh, you know the word feel good. They don't. They, they don't have a lot of feel good in Israel, which is sort of positive reinforcement. But thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you both.
1: It's really wonderful to be with you here. And I've read some of your books, and you write so well. You tell such a good story. Um, and I've read, of course, your last book. Well, I'm not sure if it's your last book, but one of your recent books. Yeah. I, and your interaction with the Obama administration. So I guess my first question is, I think you're one of the only people in Israel today who has some experience with dealing with the people that Joe Biden will be putting into place uh, to deal with Israel, Secretary of State, et cetera. Give us some insight, maybe some hope. (laughs) Um, (laughs) what What should we be expecting, Ambassador Oren?
2: Well, let's start with Joe Biden himself. I think, you know, I, I don't think I'm self-aggrandizing by saying I'm, I'm one of the two Israelis who know uh, Joe Biden best, the other being Benjamin Netanyahu, who's not saying much about it. But during the years, uh, much of the years when I was in Washington, Hillary Clinton, as secretary of state, boycotted the Israeli embassy. What do you was mean part that? of that? She just wouldn't meet with me, wouldn't have anything to do with me. Why? Because it was part of the Obama administration's policy toward us. Uh, which was to, I believe, to downgrade the Israeli-American relationship from a special relationship to a normal relationship. It was, it was taking us down a couple of notches. And whereas my predecessors used to be able to call an American secretary of state you know, on a daily basis if they needed to, uh, uh, my phone calls would not be returned. But Joe, I, Joe Biden wouldn't play by those rules. It's interesting. Um, uh, He's very close to Israel. Um, I had, a, I, I believe, an open door to him, an open door to his staff. And he became what we know diplomacy as a POC, my point of contact, uh, for much of what went on in the administration. So I, I got to know him very well. Um, he is, what can I say? He's a good guy. He's just a good guy. He the, he's a minch, He's just it's that. He's that very rare phenomenon uh, of a politician who actually likes human beings. <laughs> Laura's laughing because she's, a, she's, a, she's in politics. But
1: I love human beings.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, but most politicians do not. And most politicians, right. you know, Joe Biden would walk into a room of 800 people and say, oh my God, there's 800 people here. I'm going to meet all 800 of them. Watch me go. Most politicians will walk into a room. I mean, excuse me, think Bibi. Bibi doesn't walk into a room with 800 people and say, I'm going to go up and talk to every single one of these people. No, Obama no certainly wasn't like that. But that's most politicians. Joe I Biden thought, lo- yeah. loves human beings. Loves being a politician. He, he seems to be having, I've never seen a politician enjoy himself the way he does, just enjoy it, um, voluble, as you know, um, and um, full of aphorisms. Uh, most of his aphorisms would always begin, begin with, as my father used to tell me. I can't tell you how many times I used to hear him say, as my father used to tell me, my favorite one was, and this is unusual for Jews and it doesn't translate very well into, um, into Hebrew, as my father always told me, never crucify yourself on a small
0: cross. <laughs> <laughs> the mission's got to right. be
2: Now, you, like, you, you, you guys got that, but it's very difficult to translate. I tried it on an Israeli um, you you know, radio interview. And it was very hard.
1: There's no ambassador. There's no cross metaphors that work in this country. I'll teach
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. to live. No, don't Um, die
1: on this hill. Yeah, don't die
2: on this hill. So there was a great line. So he was like that. Um, Intensely loyal, intensely loyal to Obama. Many people ascribe that to his Catholicism. And I think with a genuine warm spot in his heart for the state of Israel. Because he is of that generation that remembers the Six-Day War, certainly remembers the 73 War. He came to Israel for the first time in 1973, met with Golda. We all heard that story a thousand times of how Golda told him, we have no place else to go, therefore we have to win. We know that. But but he was he's a person who surrounded by Jews, comfortable by Jews. He had a Rosh Hashanah reception every year, which nobody would ever miss. A great Rosh Hashanah reception. Um, It was just, what can I say? It was always a pleasure working with him, but he could be a very, very tough talker. He would give it to you straight. And, you know, maybe there was an essence of good cop, bad cop in it. But I think that he was a genuinely good cop. He wasn't playing good cop. And he cared about the relationship. And I think it pained him. You know, everyone remembers the Biden crisis of 2010, much yeah. Lamo and that. Um, I I had worked out a resolution to that crisis with Biden's staff. It was only uh, when Biden was actually in the air going back to Washington that the Obama White House decided to make it into a crisis. It was not a Biden's doing that crisis. So is it? Um, I think it. I, I don't think he was particularly happy with the way the U.S.'s relationship um, was
0: deteriorating during these years.
2: Now what? again, he's very,
0: very, very loyal to the president. He's a loyal man. He, he's starting to obviously form his his nominee cabinet, and he has nominated um, for Secretary of State role, um, Anthony Blinken. Um, mm-hmm. A lot has been already written in the last twenty-four hours on him. I presume when you were in your role as ambassador, um, you had interactions with uh, the, the, the 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 nominee for Secretary of State. Uh, many, uh, both on the professional
2: and personal level. Um, let me begin by saying I like him. I like him enormously. I always did. Uh, I respected him. He is a clear thinker. Um, you know, everyone's mentioned his Jewish connection. His his stepfather was a Holocaust survivor. A famous librettist, extraordinary individual. I mean, Tony's just he, 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 hes is a he's a delightful human being, and—and uh, and a very serious thinker. Um, I also know Jake Sullivan, the man who will be the—the. Uh, the, uh, National Security Advisor. And the National Security Advisor is in many ways the most important person for the State of Israel. He's not the most public person you see with the State of Israel. But the National Security Advisor is the person who meets with the head of the Mossad, the head of the, the Shabak, who meets with the Chief of Staff, who meets with, you know, with uh, certainly with our, with our principal political leaders. Um, and Jake, I know quite well, but again, both on the political and the professional and the personal level. Um, and Jake... Is is a good guy, very very smart guy, Rhodes Scholar, um, but he is one of the architects of the Iran nuclear deal, and he negotiated behind our backs um, while the administration was basically lying to us um, that there was you know that that there was an open channel to the Iranians, but there was a back channel, and they were always denying there was a back channel. Well, Jake was the back channel, and uh, so we're going to have to deal with that legacy, um, and I will not put too fine a point on this for both of you. The Iran nuclear deal deeply endangers every man, woman, and child in the state of Israel, and I believe every person in the Middle East, and ultimately every American too.
0: Do you think, therefore, that plays into actually some of what we are hopefully going to be speaking about in terms of the Abraham Accords, that yes, normalization with the UAE, Bahrain, and, and Sudan more recently has been driven by a number of factors, but is there a coming sense of a Iran issue that will be emboldened to some extent, maybe not as much as during the Obama years, but a return to the JCPOA policy to some extent, and therefore running into sort of bedfellows here of we're going to have to actually make an alliance. Is the accords actually a different word for strategic alliance against what may well be coming over the next few years?
2: And my answer to all of those excellent questions is yes. Um, I think that 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 question is, it is pertinent to the recent um, reported meeting between um, the prime minister and the Saudi uh, crown prince. Um, I think there's a, a, a great amount of, of, um, of reshuffling going on uh, and preparations for a possible renewal of the JCPOA. And um, that also comes against the background of the one great uh, continuum uh, in U.S. foreign policy, beginning with Obama, continuing with Trump, and I imagine it's going, to, it's going to continue with Biden as well. And that's 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 the process of isolationism of withdrawal. Um, it, it's interesting bad? to watch. Is
1: that it. bad or good for us, Ambassador? Because on the one hand, I think to myself, they're busy with Corona. It would be great if they just just let us be for a year or so.
2: <laughs> be, yes, just yes. Ignore
1: us for a bit, please. Um, on the other hand, we don't want them to ignore us too much because, of course, the special alliance. Is, is something extremely significant for the state so where, where do you stand on that
2: I stand I, if you give me a choice between an America that is pressuring Israel on settlements um, and even an America that's trying to engage with Iran because even Trump was going to try to engage with Iran keep in mind and um, and an America that is withdrawing from the Middle East and the world I will take I will take the pressure. Got it. Why? Because when America withdraws just from the Middle East, it, and geopolitics, like nature, abhors a vacuum, the vacuum will be filled, and who is it going to be filled by? It's going to be filled by Russians, by Turks, by Iranians, yeah. Yeah. by ISIS, yeah. and you know, Israel, the Middle East, and the world has an interest in an America that projects power, that is willing and capable of projecting power. America today is a unwilling to project power. I can't think of a situation where America would send an army abroad like it did in the, in the two Gulf Wars.
0: Yeah.
2: And I cannot, uh, and I don't think America even has the ability today in the same way. So, and everybody says that, you know, the Russians sense it, the Chinese sense it. That is not necessarily good for Israel. The only bright side to this whole equation is that we are no longer in 1967 or 1973. We're a strong country. Yes. And we can we can stand on our own two feet, too better. I used to say to, to uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, I used to say, you know, we owe... President Obama a big, uh, big, uh, big note of thanks. And he'd look at me <laughs> rather, you know, puzzled. What do you mean? Why should we thank President Obama? And I'd say, because he kicked us out of the nest for a generation. At least we were in that American nest. We always assumed that the Americans would, would you know, help us be there. And it was, I said, it because of Obama, Mr. Prime Minister, that you went to China, you went to, you went to Africa, you went to South America, uh, you reached out. He forced us to do this. And it's not a bad thing. Today, our diplomatic portfolio, and you know this floor because you're out there, is far more diverse than it ever was.
1: Absolutely. And do you think that in the same way or maybe in a different way, if there is a rapprochement with Iran about the JCPOA, us and the Saudi Arabians will be pushed into each other's arms closer? I mean, this is what the meeting was purportedly about.
2: I, I, think, I think that's true. I think with the Saudis, though, the Saudis are not the Bahrainis and not the Maratis because the Saudis are, among other things, the uh, custodians of the two holiest cities in Islam. And it's hard for them to reconcile publicly with the, the custodian of the third holiest city in Islam uh, for, which you, for which you work. So it, it's not easy for them. But I think short of, you know, say embassies with flags flying, we're going to see a closer relationship between, um, between uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel. Um, I do not expect, I would be pleasantly surprised to see uh, the incoming administration invest very heavily in the Abrahams Accord.
0: Really? You think that there will be a lack of focus from then to push forward on, what, so, um, on something that's gained incredible momentum? Um, it has built a sort of life of its own in the region. There's certainly excitement. Um, you think there will be a... Moving away from investing time and energy into continuing that momentum? I would not be surprised to see that situation. I'll tell you why for two reasons. One is what I call the
2: AB syndrome. Every administration comes in and says anything but. So Obama came in and was anything but Bush. And then Trump came in and was anything but Obama. And the Abraham Accords were the achievements of the previous administration. And it'd be one thing if it was an administration in which there were sort of good feelings between the, <laughs> between the incumbent and the incoming, and, um, and, but they're not. And so in, in America, and I'm talking to you from America, any, you know, in, in that world of democratic, liberal America, anything that, that is associated even remotely with Donald Trump is, uh, as they say in Hebrew, Mukse, it is, it, is, it, is, it is, right? It's impure. Can't touch it that's one reason the other reason is is the ideological reason and that is is going to be a a natural inclination and indeed uh, from the bottom up from within the party pressure to return the palestinian issue to the forefront and um and to put these other relationships on the back burner this will be particularly impactful with regard to sudan because with sudan it was about american aid and i don't know if that aid is going to be forthcoming
0: How does how does the Israeli government row back from the, I guess, the Trump era party, quote unquote, in terms of our engagement with the U.S. administration? How do they row back diplomatically to a Biden presidency that's going to look and feel very different for Israel and the region? Therefore, how how do we handle that? Well, we handle it the best we can Uh, keep in mind that, yes, whereas
2: uh, whereas uh, Joe Biden is not is not Donald Trump, neither is he, he Barack Obama. Um, now that's difficult to say given the, the, the appointments which seem to be you know Obama redox, but um, he's he's not a deeply ideological person. With Obama, the issue of Israel, Palestine, Iran we're, we're, were deep in his heart and his gut. You know, He came to the Middle East right off the bat, skipped over Israel, uh, gave a Cairo speech which changed American policy without even informing us. I mean, really very, very different. And that Cairo speech, I was told by people in the administration he'd been he'd been thinking of that speech for months, if not years. This is not Joe Biden, but having said that, he is a Democrat. The Democratic Party and he have a policy. They have a policy about the two-state solution, uh, based on the 67 borders with swaps, uh, a Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem. They have a policy about the Iran nuclear deal. There's going to be pressure on him to renew that deal because that was the that was the signal achievement of the Obama administration in foreign policy.
1: If we can call it an achievement, of course, uh, we know. Oh, that- it was an
2: achievement. Make no mistake about it. The problem is it, it was, was an achievement. For, the problem is it was achievement for Iran. <laughs> oh God, absolutely. It was, it was a brilliant achievement for Iran. And it, it is a stroke of genius for Iran.
1: I mean, it just, you know, I was recently on a on a panel on, on TV um, and they had Martin Indyk on Zoom talking about how normalization was actually their idea. And I said, well, what about you know, the famous speech of John Kerry saying there would never, ever, ever be normalization without uh, the Palestinian problem being solved first. And of course that doctrine has proved completely erroneous, turned on its head. Do you really see us going backwards? Yes. <laughs> oh, please. Because, because
2: American, part, listen, I have a, you know, I'm a historian by training. And I, I, several years ago, I wrote a book called Power, Faith and Fantasy. America in the Middle East, uh, 1776 to the present. You know, I'm not in politics anymore, so I can I, can, I, can hack, my, I can hack my own books, okay? Available <laughs> at famously reduced prices, but it, um, it is literally the best, the best history of America involvement in the Middle East, because it's the only history <laughs> of American history in the Middle East. And what you learn looking over the course of almost 250 years of American foreign policy in the Middle East is the degree to which it is d- driven by ideology and faith, not necessarily by interest. And it would be in America's interest to promote the Abraham Accords.
1: Absolutely. So
2: it would certainly America's interest. It would be in America's interest to form a united pro-American, anti-Iranian strategic front in the Middle East. That's America's interest. America's ideology under this administration is going to be different. American ideology would be we have to interact with the Iranians in order to change their behavior. We have to find a just solution for the suffering of the Palestinian people. Now, that's gonna, that's a, these are powerful ideologies, and they, they are uh, deep, They are profound influences. They exert profound influences on American foreign policy. I could go to sit with one of these new appointments appointees to the administration and say, look, we have been in this conflict for a century. In the century, there is actually no evidence, zero evidence, that the Palestinians are willing or capable of sustaining a state structure, right? They have, they have a corrupt, unelected leadership that has stolen hundreds of millions of dollars from their own people. They teach their kids terror. They pay terrorists in jail. What makes you think <laughs> that the two-state solution is in any way reflective of, of Middle East reality? And I can say everything I've said is true. True, right? It's, it's, I don't everything
1: think you've said I think is true.
2: Will it impact? Will, will it change their policy? Probably not.
1: Do they understand? I'm very involved in the whole Palestinian schoolbook stuff because it affects my city. Ninety percent of the students in East Jerusalem, Arab students, learn the Palestinian Authority schoolbook, which of course teaches incitement, um, martyrdom, glorification of martyrdom, complete denial that we exist. And this is funding that um, that Trump cut from the Palestinian Authority, and I. And I'm assuming funding will be restored very quickly by the Biden administration in
2: in, in keeping with the the Taylor Force Act. So that's
1: the difference. I think now the Taylor Force Act has has changed something. I'm not sure if the Palestinian schoolbook comes under the Taylor Force Act because it that's...
2: does not. At best of my knowledge, it doesn't.
1: So the, my question to them is. Let's say you want a two-state solution, which, of course, is part of their ideology. Let's say we want a two-state solution, which I'm not sure it's viable anymore. But let's say, do they think that teaching or paying for Palestinian children to learn incitement is what's going to get us any closer to that? I just don't see the logic in it.
2: But it comes under the same rubric that I mentioned before. Um, There's an unwillingness to look at the Middle East as a reality. You know, I was very supportive of the Trump peace plan. And uh, you know, full disclosure, I was involved in, in, in the early stages of formulating that plan.
1: Me too. I thought uh, it
2: was a great plan. A great plan. But one of the great things I, that I like, I mean, I, and I have my criticism of it.
1: Yeah.
2: But was the the what it had going for it, it was the first plan I've seen, and and I'm I'm older than everybody here. Um, I was an advisor to Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. I have accompanied this peace process from day one. Uh, and I've been in Middle East negotiations, so I, I have an interesting sort of varied perspective on it. This is the first peace plan that, that came close came close to responding and reflecting the Middle Eastern realities. Okay. The other peace plan is completely divorced from Middle Eastern realities. Yeah. And, you know, and it, it, again, there were problems with this peace plan too, but it came very close. No one's going to be able to look at that, at, at the, in this, in this, certainly in this administration, and say, you know, we're going to maintain the Trump peace plan a because it's trump but b because of the ideology same idea we're going to have to do our best with it you know i'm going to say something rather controversial now so brace yourself
1: great this uh, is our headline, rob <laughs>
2: okay hold on and that is you know in 2009 i know this is ancient history for many people when, when president obama said not a brick on a brick about building in judea and samaria and in jerusalem and every time we, we built, a, someone built a room in Gilo. In Gilo, the president would issue a harsh condemnation. I remember in the middle of a China trip, he stopped to issue a condemnation about Gilo. And Israelis flinched. We were scared, weren't we? This was a tremendously powerful, influential pa- uh, pre- president. We're scared. I mean, I think that was the, the reason that the prime minister gave his uh, Bar Ilan speech. America's not in the same situation today, a decade later. Mm that And I think that I think if this administration does condemn, you know, if we build a room in ELO, it will not have the same impact that when Obama did it. Not because but, Joe Biden's not Obama, because America's not America.
0: But I think I think what you're saying is really going to the heart of the difference of negotiating style. We have ideology driving the process versus what we've had over the last four years, which is just Reality, realpolitik, there are things that will not change and there are things that are on the ground that everyone accepts mm. as reality. And, and that doesn't play into the world of politics and diplomacy sometimes, but that might be why it's worked over the, the past four years. And, you know, you've been around this for, for a long time. Long um, time. What, what, what changed decades of intransigence from the Arab world to move so quickly into oh. this new dynamic? Well, that's a different question. What changed a couple of things. Uh, one
2: was Iran and the Iran nuclear deal. Two was America's withdrawal from the Middle East. And we'd all, you know, we'd all, we'd all enjoyed the Pax Americana. Um, three, the growth of Israel as a power, right? Eighth most powerful country in the world, power.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but four, I think on the Arab side, just complete disgust with the Palestinians you know, who supported Saddam Hussein, these are the Palestinians who who ripped off their own people. These these are the Palestinian people who rejected at least three two-state solution offers in in a single decade, okay? They fed up with them, fed up with their terror, fed up with their radicalism, fed up with their fractionalism, and want to move on, enough already,
1: enough already. Fed up with the fact that they can't get themselves together, I think. When I was in Dubai, I met the treasurer one of the treasurers of Dubai, he said to me, you know how much money we've given to the Palestinians? I said, no, how much? He says, $1.7 billion. We don't have $1 of accountability for any of the money.
2: None whatsoever. It all went to bank accounts in Paris, really. Yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah. they're fed up and legitimately so fed up. And, uh, you know, how long are we going to be, you know, anchored to this, this horrible conflict where, you know, I think they understood. I think they understood the Israeli people sometimes better than we understand ourselves, and that is that if the Israelis are offered real peace, we'll make huge sacrifices. Yeah. But the Palestinians actually, I I mean, I've come to the conclusion after many, many years of involvement, that the Palestinians actually don't even want a state. There's no debate in Palestine about, you know, Palestinians about about what their state should look like. Um, Nobody knows. Is it an Islamic state? Is it still a, a secular democratic state? What is it? And I think the one thing the Palestinians can agree on is they don't want us.
1: Yeah the but rejectionism the rejectionism is the identity position. is the identity it's not let have self determination it's that's, it's just reject israel
2: i was going to tell you a quick story about that which is you know uh, I, I participated in the last round of negotiations with the Palestinians which lasted 6 hours and i was sitting with saib arakat and you know i don't know if you're going to say i love a shalom, but late sorry, arakat <laughs> uh, i was not a fan and um, <laughs> I was not a fan It uh, caused us great damage. And I think it caused his own people great damage. I don't know why Same. people would eulogize it, but um, he said something to me, which I think gave me an insight into the Palestinians into the conflict that, I, that many years of university could never give me. And this is what he said. He said, you want us to recognize you as the Jewish state. You're asking us to give up our identity You get what he was saying. Their identity is about not being us; is negating our identity. Exactly. Our identity is completely independent of them, but their their identity is entirely dependent on us, and it's negating our divinity. And if you want to know why you're never going to achieve peace with these people, that's why, right there.
0: i mean that that is so insightful that is an incredible amazing story that is an incredible story because it it comes directly to the accords and it comes back to something that i know that you're thinking about in terms of the future of israel as we head to 100 years um and for me we have now countries that have recognized israel we're having normalization we on the paradox of that have a palestinian people who will never at the moment recognize the state of israel we have 25 percent of parliamentarians in the knesset who won't sing or stand for the national anthem <laughs> sounds for. like you've read you've you, sounds like you've read my manifesto <laughs> i may have i may have I and use that statistic yeah you do use that statistic and so i'm using yeah. it back at you to say on the one hand mm-hmm. we have this happening internally within our borders. And at the same time, we have normalization with partners in the region. How is this reconcilable?
2: Because the, I think that, uh, you know, I, I had a piece in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago where I took on the peace establishment. There's a, you know, a vast peace establishment in the United States. Martin Indick of course, is a great figure in this. And, um, you know, they were, they were laughing at the Abraham Accord saying, ha, 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 this isn't peace, it's normalization. Okay, but it, of course it was exactly backwards. We have peace with Jordan, we have peace with Egypt, but we don't have we don't we don't have normalization. Exactly,
1: and exactly. If you give
2: me give me a choice between normalization and peace. We're going to take normalization now, aren't we? Exactly. And uh, of course, and uh, these are true peace treaties, and that is the colossal uh, historic accomplishment of the Abraham Accords. I think that they have changed Middle East peace and the concept of Middle East peace irrevocably. We're never going to go back to the Egyptian and Jordanian
1: model, ever. I totally, totally agree. And maybe it's unfair to say because we're living in the era of social network connection. What would have been if we would have been making peace with Jordan or Egypt today in the world of Zooms and WhatsApps and not when we did it? But we can't judge that. We have to judge it in the context of its day. But I I just, I have to say, I, I work, as you know, in Jerusalem and I'm in touch with a lot of Arabs who live in the mm. East, East Jerusalem. And I tell you quietly, they were also relieved with the Trump peace plan because they want to stay as part of Israel because certainly the Jerusalem Arabs have realized that their salvation is not the Palestinian Authority. Um, Ambassador Oren, what you, and, and I speak to a lot of right-wingers and left-wingers, and everybody seemed to be going towards this idea of a one-state solution. And I want to ask you, what do you think about that? Do you think it's
2: not going to happen?
1: Feasible? Why is it? Why is extreme right and extreme left talking about this?
2: But it's not going to happen. It's, it, it depends, you know, how you define um, a, a, a one state solution. So, you know, again, I don't want to be self ingrandizing and, you know, and, and plug my own writing. But it was an article I wrote from The Wall Street Journal now five years ago called The Two State Situation and i know that this article had a big impact on the trump peace plan because i was called into the white house to talk about the article <laughs> and what did it say yeah so what did, what did the article say well, it said many things first of all i said that that the approach to, to israeli palestinian peace is completely wrong it's a westphalian approach where people sit around and talk about maps and borders and you know um, and you know westphalian formulas aren't even working in westphalia anymore why should they work in the middle east the 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 peace process is based on on demands that neither side can make, okay? They're not gonna recognize us as a Jewish state. We're not gonna rip up 100,000 people. We're not gonna, uh, you know, settlers, we're not gonna redivide Jerusalem. We're not gonna let the Palestinians, uh, we're not gonna outsource our security to the Palestinians. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. That's why I thought about being, but I said, there is actually a two-state reality Mm. in our area. If you drive up Highway Six and look to your right, you're going to see very big Palestinian flags flying over to Karm, right, and Janine, You're going to see the big. Yeah. Pl- there's a there's a state over there. Yeah, it has a government. It has a police force.
1: It has it has, has territory. It has a capital you know, Ramallah. It
2: it it is a it is not it is not a barbarian state. It doesn't have you know absolute sovereignty, but actually a few states do. But okay, it's a state. So yeah. this talk about whether one state or two state is actually a moot debate. The question is, what is the nature of the, two, the relationships between the two states that already exist? And what is the extent of the sovereignty of the Palestinian state? Mm. Those, those are the only issues. I agree. And if you look at the Trump peace plan, I said, to the, I said to the White House, I said, you know, you have this reality. Just build on the reality. Don't try to change the reality. It's given to you. And that's pretty much what the Trump peace plan is, if you look at it. And it's um, it's interesting. Interesting was,
1: because in Jerusalem, they, I, I, you know, we had some conversations with them about Jerusalem. And again, I said to them that, you know, we have the separation fence in Jerusalem. Um, and that's our reality. The reality is that it's very difficult mm-hmm. to do municipal services over that fence in the refugee camps, which of course are mm-hmm. not really refugee camps. And they created the, I don't think it's because I said it, I'm sure people said the same thing, but they created. The border of Jerusalem on the wall, which, like you say, it's the reality of how we're living. So all the Arabs on this side of the wall are with Israel, and all the others on this side of the wall are in a future Palestinian state.
2: But it, but that that's the reality. Okay, and. Um... You know, I think that that's why I think that the, the one state solution is not it just it's not on the cards. First of all, Israelis are not going to agree to it. So that's, that's, no one's going to agree to it. That's maybe the far right, maybe the far left, but the majority of Israelis will never agree to it. And we actually have a reality which is two states. Uh, we just have to work out, you know, the parameters of the reality. I, um, I, I, I would have, I, I believe that if you know we had had four more years of the Trump administration, that might have been possible. Um, I, I'm, a lot, I'm a lot more doubtful now. Um, and here's why, and it's a very important point I'm gonna make now, I, I, I think it's the, maybe the most important point, if you will. It's this, by renewing support for UNRWA, by reopening the Palestinian embassy in Washington, by um, um, reopening the American consulate in East Jerusalem as a de facto American embassy to the Palestinians, any administration do that will be doing an immense, immense disservice to the Palestinians. So why? And it's, I'm, I, this is gonna sound a little patronizing and apologizing apologize for it, but if you, if you incentivize the Palestinians not to go back to the negotiating table, they will not go back to the negotiating table. That's simple. And it creates a situation where the Palestinians are saying, we're getting so much by not negotiating. Why go into negotiations? We're gonna to have to make concessions. But it's
0: the complete this just, doctrine of the current situation. We all know that American yeah. leverage in the region is so critical to the future mm-hmm. of what happens for the state of Israel and the surrounding countries. And the minute that leverage is unbalanced again, it just is an opportunity to do nothing. But if, even with the leverage
2: you have, though, if you use that leverage to incentivize the Palestinians not to negotiate... They will not negotiate. One which, of the great, is, I, which is sorry. what happened
1: with you when you were the ambassador. This is what happened with Obama. They were so confident and arrogant about Obama's uh, position with them that they didn't even sit to negotiate with us, even though BB did an 11-month settlement freeze. That's what happened when you were there. Um, they,
2: they, eight years of the most pro-Palestinian president uh, in history, and they totally squandered it. They squandered. they squandered it because they were incentivized not to negotiate. Exactly. You know, they said no. And, 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 the president Obama gave them an embassy. I mean, really. Yeah. And, yeah. um, one of the great, I think, you know, legacies of the Trump administration, which I, alas, I don't think is going to last is not going to last is that Trump said, you leave the table, you get punished. You don't get rewarded.
1: Mm.
2: And, uh, you know, it comes out of the business world. And, um, you know, your first offer is your best offer. Your second offer is, is, is less good, which is just the opposite of what had been. You know, you yeah. reject the first offer, you're going to get a better, better second offer. Yeah. Um, that's the difference between Ehud Barak and, and Ehud Olmert. All right. You, you say no, you get a better offer. And, um, you know, Trump said, no, you're going to get a worse offer. Yeah. Now, that, 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 that's basic business sense. Okay, yeah. It's not Trump. It's just basic business sense. I'm afraid that's going to go by the
0: wayside. So. I know you've written recently on a few articles and been interviewed and you've um, mentioned that the incoming administration is building the story and the case that Iran is getting closer and closer to nuclear capabilities, which may be questionable and you've you've raised that as a doctrine that they're pushing forward to say look even with what happened as a result of pulling out of the deal it didn't stop them they're still getting closer and closer than ever um what's your view on i mean it's the same thing it's part of the same story it's the leverage on either side and they're just loading the scales on the other side but how how do we use the accords if they're going to be to some extent potentially paused to, until someone picks them up again and, and pushes forward, unless there's bilateral decisions mm-hmm. between Israel and, and Saudi Arabia. How do we use the Accords in a diplomatic environment to help us with this situation?
2: Well, ideally, it would be um, is, um, Israeli leaders joining with, uh, leader, with Gulf leaders in writing op-eds, for example, putting out with a, a joint statement that says, this is why, these, why, this, why this agreement is, is terrible for us, do not tell us that it helps our security because it's just just the opposite. Don't tell us that Iran is closer to a bomb now than it was in 2015 because that's a lie. All right, it just it just it, we have to stand together, but publicly. And um, you know, it's easy for me to do that with with Israelis. It, it would be wonderful to be able to do it with some of my Arab colleagues.
1: My impression mm-hmm. from there is that everybody's very worried. They're worried about Iran. They're worried about Turkey.
2: They are caught between a, a rock and a hard place. They have to deal with, with the Sunni extremists and yeah. Shiite extremists. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not not easy. Um, I, I, I'm i planning a series of op-eds uh, in early January. Um, uh, around, you know Basically an appeal saying, guys, don't kill us. And basically, <laughs> really, yeah. don't endanger my kids. And, yeah. and, th- and that, I hope that will have some impact. Maybe it will empower some people in the administration who, who want to you know, pause and think about this again. Um, but one thing it will take on is this lie that somehow this agreement has enhanced our security or that the withdrawal from it in any way has hindered our security. On the contrary, on the, I mean, massively on the contrary. How can I say this? The um, Iran nuclear deal gave Iran tens of billions of dollars which, with which it didn't build a single hospital or school. Of course not. It, it gave it all to terror, to missiles. How did that, how did that help us all the while maintaining their nuclear infrastructure, their, their military blueprints, their missile program. I mean, really, um, the fact that they are enriching some uranium, by the way, according to the international atomic energy commission, not that much, you know, not even enough to make one bomb, That could you ask Israelis whether we'd have whether have that situation or situation five years from now when the nuclear deal expires and Iran can make 100 bombs, 100 bombs very quickly, by the way. Um, that's we're gonna have to explain that in in the simplest terms. Sometimes it's difficult to explain because it's very technical.
1: Incredible. Um, Ambassador Oren, what's next for you? You're a celebrated (laughs) historian. Are we gonna see you back in politics? Do we think uh, a diplomatic role is on the cards?
2: Well, here it is. So, you know, I, I am an author and I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm here, unfortunately, because my father's ill in the United States. But um, I've, I've been on a, a virtual book tour for my new book. It's called uh, The Night Archer and, and Other Stories. It's a collection of 51 short stories. I'm also a, a fiction writer. Um, this is not my first work of fiction, uh, but I was unable to publish during the years when I was in office. I don't know how it is as the vice mayor of, uh, of Jerusalem, but I could write, but I couldn't publish being in Knesset or being ambassador. So I'm writing and, and I'm, I'm always writing new books, but um, I'm uh, politically very involved. Um, now, I mentioned this manifesto. Uh, I know that your, your cousin Isaac's involved with it too. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a vision of Israel in, in, on its 100th birthday. Uh, it's called Israel, the Rejuvenated State in English, uh, 2048. It's a collection of of essays about every aspect of Israeli uh, domestic and foreign policy and what we should look like, what we should strive for uh, on our 100th birthday. Um, So I'm involved in in adapting that to book length and then disseminating it to Israeli thinkers and getting a conversation about, because we have to have a conversation about our future. We're not having one.
1: I Um, agree, Ambassador, and I'm very happy that we have somebody like you that can look into the future. What I actually found in the UAE is that people really know how to plan ahead and think ahead. I think you're one of the few people in this country who are thinking ahead in that way, and we're very grateful to have you.
2: Thank you, thank you. I think, you know, being involved in Israeli governance and the Army for, uh, alas, over 40 years, gives me gives me a perspective as to sort of the historical background. Um, and I remain very politically active. Um, and, you know, I always say, if called to the flag, uh, whether uh, in government or in diplomacy, I'll always be there.
0: Amazing. Well, look, Ambassador Oren, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. We really appreciate your insights and look forward to following your intelligent and insightful contribution to our national life as we continue our journey as the state of israel okay my pleasure thank too. You. Guys. thank you very much thank you, thank you for joining flair and i on the abraham accords podcast remember to subscribe so you can be updated on more episodes